0: Hey, Sinpodians! just a quick disclaimer, the audio in this episode is a little bit rough at times, especially toward the beginning of the interview. The truth is we recorded this interview towards the very beginning of when we had the idea for this podcast, and we were still kind of getting our bearings in terms of how to do remote interviews and try to have better quality. Uh, But Carol's experiences are really interesting and beautiful, and we hope the quality doesn't drive you away. We would love it if you stayed, and our hope is that you'll find these stories just as fascinating and encouraging as we did. So, with that said, I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: This woman sitting next to me sits bolt upright, lifted the headset off of the woman behind me, put it on my head, and said, Carol has to hear this. My eyes are full of tears, and the entire design team had all gathered around and they were looking at me hey i'm christine and i'm gracie we
2: both have a brain condition called synesthesia and we love it it blends different senses together
3: and makes our lives richer and more colorful but my brother ian he is a skeptic
0: no it is totally real <laughs>
2: so, on this show, we meet incredible people and explore their amazing stories about how synesthesia is changing the world. From artists to musicians to thought leaders and scientists, people with synesthesia are everywhere, and they make our lives more colorful.
0: Colorful. Colour- more. I more hate to say. Colorful. colorful. <laughs> Hi. Welcome, Welcome to, to SynPod. It worked. Oh, <laughs> Jesse, your laughing makes it
3: harder. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to SinPod. I'm Christine Olmstead, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Gracie Olmstead. Hello. And Ian Reed. Hey guys. And today we're talking with Carol Steen, the co-founder of the American Synesthesia Association. She is an artist, a writer, curator, synesthete, and she's had over 20 exhibitions in numerous museums and galleries around the world. She's an international speaker and academic on the subject of synesthesia and art. We are so, so excited to chat with Carol Steen today. Welcome, Carol.
1: Hi. Nice to be with you. So good to see you. You too.
3: Thanks for taking the time. I know it sounds like you have a busy schedule and you're constantly creating. So uh, we're really excited to chat with you today.
0: Yes.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I think uh, you have uh, a really unique and cool form of synesthesia. Several uh,
3: kinds from what we've read. Se-
0: several, but, but, but there is one that really stood out right. uh, when I first found out about you and your life and your work. And I think it actually ties into a story about going to the dentist. Is that correct?
1: Well, that's one of them. Yes. Uh, I have five main forms of synesthesia. One of them includes colored pain, which is similar to colored touch, but a little bit different because with colored pain, I use it diagnostically. When I get a really bad pain, the color of that is orange. So it doesn't matter if I've bumped into a wall or uh if I have a toothache. Well, this particular tooth, it didn't hurt. Instead, it just started to glow orange. And I saw that in the same place we watch our daydreams. It's what the scientists call the mind's eye. So I knew what this was. I knew that the nerve in this particular tooth was dying and I better go get a root canal, not my favorite thing to do. And I admit to being very much afraid of dentists, (laughs) but, uh, I knew that it would really hurt. So I went to this dentist, I'd been going to him for a while. And I said, I have a tooth that needs a root canal and I'd like you to do it. And he said, Oh, um, how do you know that you have a problem with, uh, this particular tooth, <laughs> it just popped out. I said, well, it's glowing orange. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, being the conservative dentist that he was and not knowing anything about synesthesia, he said, I see, um, <laughs> does, it, does it hurt when I blast it with cold water? And no, it didn't. So he tried hot. That didn't work either. And then he thought, well, he took the end of one of his dental tools and he tapped on the tooth. And he said, does that bother you? And I said, no. He said, well, maybe you should go home and wait a couple of weeks and see what happens. And if it's still bothering you, uh, come back and we'll do the root canal. Well, as I explained, I'm afraid of dentists, and I had taken all my courage to get into that chair, I wasn't going to leave. Yeah. So I offered him the worst logic I've ever come up with in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> but it was delivered with passion. He <laughs> said, well, if you do, A root canal on this tooth, I promise it will never need another one.
3: (laughs) Hey, that works. Yeah, just get it out of the way.
1: (laughs) It wasn't my logic that persuaded him. (laughs) But he did do the root canal. Now, when root canals are done, some dentists like to isolate the tooth. So they put in a rubber dam and they tie it up to God knows what and they have something to section saliva out and the end result is you can't talk. So he gets in there <clears throat> and then he stops and he says, hmm and I can't talk and I want to know what does hmm mean? And he said, eventually, he said, You were right. He said the nerve is dying. It's not dead yet, but it is dying. This tooth needed a root canal. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what was the what was that moment where he's like, "Oh, I see." It's <laughs> very <What, ignored. laughs> did, did, like, did he did he give you a look like you're crazy, or did or like what was what was that moment like?
1: I didn't watch. I'm terrified. My eyes are always shut. So what I'm doing while my eyes are shut is because. I have colored sound and I have colored touch is I'm picking up all kinds of colors synesthetically. So I'm busy watching those. And I take nitrous oxide. And that enhances the colors. (laughs) 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 So I'm numbed out. I'm getting a root canal and I'm watching synesthetic colors from touch and from sound. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious whether there have
2: been other times in your life where colored pain has helped you to diagnose problems or to realize maybe the answer to a conundrum that you've experienced. That's pretty fascinating.
1: I use it diagnostically, yes, and there have been plenty of times. Well, I need to say that on the Onyx Land, the William Shatner program, I'm included in their broadcast on super human senses and the story that I told, my husband and I had gone hiking way out into Tofino, which is way out into the Pacific on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And we were fascinated by the tidal pools, but we're city kids. And we weren't paying attention to the Pacific Ocean coming in. And as it was coming in, it was crashing on the rocks that we were standing on. We were getting drenched. I'm not a natural gifted athlete. My husband is. So we were standing on a rock about as high as your desk. And he jumped off and he was fine. Normally, I would ask for a hand down, but we were getting wet. I wanted to get out of there, so I too jumped off. I thought the sand would be soft. It was hard as cement. And when I landed, I had landed badly and twisted my knee, and I had snapped a ligament in my knee. Mm -hmm. Everything that I saw with my eyes open was orange.
0: Wow. Different
1: shades of orange. So the sand was a lighter orange and the rocks we'd been standing on were a very dark orange. And the blur of orange that I was seeing was my husband coming to drag me out of the ocean, which was now washing over me because the tide was mm-hmm. coming in. And he helped me get to my feet and he said, are you okay? I said, I don't know. I stood there for a little while and my normal color vision came back. And he said, well, I'm just going to perch you up on these rocks here and I'll go get help. And I said, please don't leave me. So he said, do you think you can walk? I said, let's try. So he helped me and we had to navigate around these huge black rocks and the uneven terrain. And there were tree roots and pebbles and valleys. It wasn't flat. I fell a second time and again, a whole world that I was watching with my eyes open was orange. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And finally we got back to the hotel. Long story short, I got back to New York and we had to go through physical therapy. The surgeon wouldn't do the operation until I was able to really walk on my own, even though my knee would be unstable. He wanted to build up the muscles and I was working with a physical therapist and every time that she would exercise my knee, uh, if I was stiff, I saw white. If the muscles were really being stressed, um, I saw blue. And after the surgery, we continued. And again, if the muscles were being stressed, I saw blue. But if I ever saw orange, that was the graft that they had put in to replace the ruptured ligament. And uh, if I saw orange, we just stopped, whatever it was she thought we were going to do, we weren't going to do it. And that was in 1998. So I'm in fine shape now. Good. We're glad <laughs> to hear uh, I
3: kind of wanted to ask a quick question about the colored pain because I you've mentioned the color orange multiple times as being your color of pain, and you're wearing an orange necklace right now. Our viewers can't see that, but I'm just curious if you have relationships with colors in like a personal way, where if orange is the color of pain to you. Does that mean you guys sometimes have animosity? Well, unfortunately, violins are also
1: orange. <laughs> and so is uh, some saxophones are also orange. Orange may be my default color for pain, but it doesn't mean that if I'm working with the color orange, Or if I'm wearing a color orange that I'm associating it with pain, I could just as easily associate it with wonderful violins. Sure. Okay.
3: I was just curious about your working relationship with it. Yeah. What
2: are, what are some of the other forms of synesthesia that you have?
1: Well, I have colored sound. I have colored smell. Recently, there's always been the question of, do you have the same forms of synesthesia throughout your whole lifetime? And my answer to that is no, because I had fewer when I was seven years old than I do now. And I remember reading about what Olivier Messian, the famous composer, had said. He said that as he got older, he had more forms of synesthesia than he had Previously, And in my case, that seems to be happening as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting more forms, and I'm getting a form that now seems to be very interesting. Um, whether it's truly related to synesthesia or not, we don't know. It's never been studied, but it's starting to be studied now. There was... Um, A book that I was sent to read by Peter Brook and Marie-Hélène Estienne because they were doing a play called Valley of Astonishment. And it was based on the sixth valley in this classic Sufi book that I had never heard of entitled Conference of the Birds. Conference of the Birds is a parable. These birds get together and they decide they want to make a pilgrimage to find God and they elect one of themselves as king. And this king bird, which was a hoopoe, which I understand is a real kind of bird, said to everybody, um, in order to find God, you must pass through seven valleys and each valley is more dangerous than the previous one. Many of you will die. And the birds are going, well, You know, I like my cage. I'm perfectly happy here. They give me feed. They give me water. I can get out of it. I can fly around. Why don't I put myself in jeopardy? But in the end, 30 birds went on this journey. The sixth valley that they had to pass through was called the Valley of Astonishment and Bewilderment. And Peter took the name of his play, Valley of Astonishment, from this, He was writing a play about people who saw the world differently and went through hell for a glimpse of paradise, which kind of describes synesthesia in a way. We get to see a whole bunch of wonderful things, but people either don't believe that it's real or they think Mm -hmm. that we're nuts. Yeah, (laughs) It is real. We're not nuts. And 4.4% of the population gets to see these things. Anyway, they told me about the book, and they said, you should read it. I went to the bookstore. I bought a copy, and I read it. They said, well, what did you think? I said, well, it was interesting. I said, what version did you read? I told them. They said, wrong version. (laughs) They sent me a book. It was from an out-of-print bookstore in Philadelphia. And they said, read it from the beginning. Don't skip ahead. So I read it from the beginning. And two weeks later, as I'm trying to fall asleep, I start seeing the most amazing visions I've ever seen in my entire life. Hmm. And they keep coming. And I'm seeing them two or three per second. They're moving that fast. They're symmetrical. They're every color of the rainbow. They're absolutely beautiful. They have just so much detail to them. And, uh, I wondered, the only way to make them stop was to open my eyes and I didn't know how to fall asleep with my eyes open. This was a problem, but eventually I fell asleep anyway. So week after week after week, day after day, I'm falling asleep and I'm seeing these visions and they're so beautiful that I feel that I absolutely have to make them. I have to try. So I did. Um, but there were two times in my life, this was one of them, when I was afraid of what I was seeing. The first time was when I was seven, and I told my best friend that I walk home from school, I grew up in Detroit, and that the letter A was the prettiest pink I had ever seen. And I thought she'd agree. That's not what mm. happened. She stopped walking. She turned and looked at me and gave me a look that seven year olds can really do better than anybody else and said, You're weird. Oh my God. Devastating. Again. And I was defenseless at seven years old. I couldn't say something like, Oh, well, I'm not going to tell you what B, C, or D look like. Forget (laughs) it. (laughs) But I didn't know what to say. And I decided that silence was safer, so I didn't talk about it for the next 13 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because this experience had cost me my best friend, anything to do with synesthesia until I learned a great deal about it was a little concerning. I was alone, isolated, and didn't know what to do. I didn't have a name. Anyway, the second. Time was when I started to see these hypnagogic visions, and I was afraid again. It's like, uh oh, what is this? Um, But I wasn't seven years old anymore.
3: And you already knew what synesthesia was at that point, is that correct?
1: I was much, much older and uh, had already started the American Synesthesia Association and knew scientists. So I contacted four of them, and the first one said, Yes, this is called hypnogosia. It's a normal state of consciousness. This happens to people before they fall asleep. And if they see these things on waking, it has a slightly different name, hypnopomic, but it's the same thing. She says, so I understand what you're seeing before you fall asleep. What I don't understand is why are you seeing them in the shower? <laughs> I didn't understand that either. The second scientist said, well, they're called hypnagogic hallucinations. And he said they're in the book, the DSM, that psychiatrists use to determine what kind of crazy you are and how badly (laughs) crazy you have, whatever it is. And he wasn't saying it to be mean. He was saying it to be kind. He wanted me to know that there could be an issue here. And he didn't want me to be blindsided. And I thanked him. The third person that I talked to, a scientist up in Canada, she said, well, you know, people who are losing their vision or who are blind will see things like this. And it has a name, it's called the Charles Bonnet syndrome. So that sent me to my eye doctor who said, there's nothing wrong with your eyes, but good you came in, we have to change your glasses (laughs) (laughs) for description. Fine. And the fourth person I contacted was in England. And he said, oh, I see those too. And that gave me permission to go ahead. Now I wasn't alone. Now I could research it. I could find a whole bunch of information. Oliver Sacks had written about it in his book called Hallucinations, and that was tremendously helpful, Um, partly because Oliver Sacks was writing so that people who were not scientists, I'm not a scientist, could understand. And then I started to ask some of the synesthetes I know, do you get them too?
0: Yeah.
1: And the answer was yes. A lot of synesthetes were saying yes. So now I'm uh, working with a scientist uh, doing a study on what synesthetes see. That's but cool. the study of synesthesia is so much in its infancy. We don't know the boundaries. We don't know what the gifts are with synesthesia. We don't know what the problems are. But we're going to find out.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Distant Moon. Distant Moon is one of the fastest growing film production and media companies in the United States. Look, if you run a business or nonprofit or work at an ad agency, you know how hard it is to connect with new audiences. We're not talking about meaningless views or vanity metrics. We're talking real, memorable audience experiences where the audience actually remembers your brand or movement story. Over the last decade of crafting video for some of the largest brands in the world, we've realized a key fact. Audiences don't care until they realize that we the storytellers care. That's why we're passionate about creating content that moves the heart, strengthens the mind, and makes the world a better place for everyone. If that sounds good to you, We'd love to work with you. Visit us and get in touch at distantmoonmedia.com. That's distantmoonmedia.com. You've
2: put together a whole series of Um, artworks based on what you see. Is that correct? Are you working on that still now or is it kind of a finished collection?
1: I've been working on them for six years because I still see them and I'm still completely fascinated by them. So yeah, I'm working on them. I have created 16 pieces for them, the University of Michigan in their medical center, and they've been printed in a process called dye sublimation so they're not oh, on paper cool. they're in aluminum.
0: We actually see a couple of them right now while we're talking to you but uh for for those who can't see because uh they're predominantly listening can you can you give us a sense just kind of describing them? Uh, what, what are these pieces and what, what do they look like and what do they mean to you?
3: Or some of your favorites. If you can't, if they're all too unique, maybe some of your favorites.
1: It's so difficult to describe art. <laughs> it's, it's really tough. I will try. Uh, these are symmetrical pieces. The image has been turned into dyes. The dyes impregnate a specially coated aluminum using heat and pressure. So when you see something on your computer screen, it has a wonderful shine to it, a kind of an inner glow. The problem with doing any kind of work digitally is that the minute that you print it on paper, that glow disappears. It's gone. When you print it on a specially treated aluminum so that your image is turned into dyes, the dyes bond on a molecular level with the metal, that inner glow is kept. So they look shiny. And when you touch them, they're smooth as glass Uh because it's actually the metal that you're touching. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And I've mounted them on special cradles so that they can be hung on a wall. And I let the very thin aluminum edge show along the edges. Uh The pieces are brilliant colors. I see all the colors of the rainbow. They are multicolored, they're made up of incredibly complex layered patterns. The center is always black. And I remember when we had our last ASA conference, it was at Harvard, and one of the scientists looked at the work and he said, your centers, are they always black? And I said, yes, he said hmm, there's that, hmm, again, that scientists and doctors say. Mm. (laughs) So I asked him, I said, is that important? He said, yes. And he explained to me that when people see things, there's a part of the brain where the center of what you're seeing is a black spot. And I always have a black spot in these visions that I see. So they radiate out from a center. And they're absolutely gorgeous. Previously, before I got the hypnagogic visions, I was painting, I was working from sound, I was working from acupuncture. And there's a huge difference between seeing something synesthetically and seeing something hypnagogically. Synesthetic visions are very soft-edged. They move more slowly, but they do move. And it's sort of like... During acupuncture, for example, or listening to music, seeing colored shapes that move slowly and gently against a black background, it's kind of like watching a movie in my head, but there's no way that I can control any of this. So when I'm painting from what I'm seeing synesthetically, the shapes are softer, gentler, layered, and as much as I can get a feeling of movement going in than I do. The better way to do it would be video. The hypnagogic visions are going so fast, not quite as fast as a strobe, but that kind of rapidity. And synesthesia's much more gently, uh moving slowly. You can you can watch a synesthetic vision. You can watch it appear in one part of this visual field, this movie screen you can watch it move. You can see it disappear, you can see something else reappear or appear new. You can see the color changes, you can watch them. And with music, uh, I don't have to remember like I do with acupuncture. So if I'm doing a painting from acupuncture, it's gonna be small because I can only remember a fraction of what I've seen. The truth is in the colors, in the movement, in the shapes. The hypnagogic ones are happening so fast that it's just an overall impression. But I've seen them for six years now and there's truth in what I'm seeing. Yes. Yeah. And that's the best I can do. So when you say you
0: do a a painting from acupuncture or a painting from music, what does that mean?
1: If I'm painting from acupuncture, it's generally I've seen something so absolutely beautiful that I want to share it. The first time that I started to do painting was in response to a question that I couldn't answer. And the question was simple. What does what you see look like? Hmm. Aha, yeah. uh-huh, words fail. So I painted it and they said, really? Is that what it looks like? Yes, <laughs> that's what it looks like
0: did you have like acupuncture treatment and then that's when you saw these and so you painted that or am I just totally misunderstanding?
1: No, you've got it. That's it. So it's funny. um, I've been doing acupuncture for about 35 years now with the same acupuncturist. And when I first went, she put the needles in and I was immediately seeing color. And Hmm. if it was on the same meridian, which I know nothing about by choice, I would see the same color. And for about six months, going about once every three weeks or so, I'd see this and finally I couldn't stand it anymore. I said, you stick the needle in and I'm seeing colors and I can tell you what colors are on the same meridian because they're the same color. And I can tell you when you come to a nexus, a joining of different meridians, because I'll get like a cord of color, different uh, colors in the same spot. And I thought, you know, like going to the dentist and hearing that hum that I was in trouble again. <laughs> but she said, that's interesting. The acupuncture points were first discovered by their colors. Interesting. Oh, wow. And that's when we made an agreement. I said, I don't want to know anything about the meridians. I don't want to know what colors they're, they are. Yeah. Because if you tell me, then I'm going to have an expectation. What if what I see is not what I'm supposed to see? So don't tell me. And to this day, I don't know. But I can tell you that when the needles go in, first I feel her fingers on my skin looking for that electrical point. And that's one color. When the needle goes in, it's like going through layers of colored jello Hmm. until she gets to the right depth.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, It sounds like that should hurt. It doesn't, Um, but I'm just watching the colors. And once all the needles are in place, I don't see the individual colors. It's sort of like someone's just tuning up the projector. And now I get to watch this movie. And for as long as my eyes are shut and the needles are in, I can watch these shapes move. One day, I was seeing these emerald green shapes, and they were falling like very gently moving crescents, falling like raindrops in three columns. And I wanted to keep watching them. But the treatment only lasts for a certain period of time, and once she started to take the needles out, all of the shapes froze. And then, as more and more needles were removed, fewer and fewer were left for me to see. And when all the needles were out, the movie screen was black—no green emerald shapes for me to watch. I was really sad. <laughs> I wanted it to continue. It was so beautiful. So I came home and I painted what I remember from that. Hmm.
2: It sounds like your decision to become an artist was pretty deeply tied to your synesthesia and what you see. So when you were younger, were you already moving in the direction of becoming an artist when you began to paint these things? Or was this something that perhaps was on the sidelines of your life and then became more prominent as
1: you went along? Great question. My family wanted me to be able to support myself. They wanted me to get a good job when I got out of college. My mother's dream for me was that I should be an English major and teach high school. So I started off college as an English major. And I got called into the dean's office when I was at the end of my sophomore year and he said you know your average isn't really very good for someone who wants to be an english major are you sure this is what you really want to do i was frightened and i said yes absolutely i i really want this um i never wanted to be an english major hmm. i always wanted to be an artist well finally i'd had enough of this and i just decided this is crazy and i said if If I can't be an art major, if I can't study art, then I'm going to drop out of college. And if I have to wash dishes, I'll wash dishes, but I want this. So I went over to the English department, and I picked up all of my papers, and I walked over to the art department, and I said, I want to be an art major. They said, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Then I called home. (laughs)
0: and then it got really fun
1: i remember clearly it was a tuesday and my parents said you did what (laughs) you're coming home this weekend okay so i arrived home it was friday and they had had three days to talk to all their friends who were going oh that's terrible she's gonna starve she's gonna be poor She's going to know strange people. <laughs> 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 Maybe she'll become a strange person. <laughs> That's the fear. And uh, one uncle. And the uncle said, could she teach? And they said, oh, yeah, she could teach. And he said, could she make something that she could sell? And they said, yeah, that could happen. He said, so what's the problem? She could make a living two ways. So thanks to him, they said it was okay, but my parents put a little condition on sending me back to school because I was adamant. Mm -hmm. So they said, okay, but go get a teaching minor. I said, okay, fine. So I, I don't really think that I had a choice. I mean, I was always fascinated by art. I was always talking to my uncles, to my father, how do you do something, and doing it myself. Uh, this was the world I wanted. With synesthesia, yeah, I was seeing things that other people weren't seeing. I didn't know that. I didn't know there were commonalities. And my life, I think, has kind of been a trail of breadcrumbs. From a bad experience when I was seven years old that I thought was really bad fortune that turned out to be the best fortune ever. Mm -hmm. because it raised a question in my head. First, it told me, you see things other people don't. And then the question became, am I alone? And then the question became, who else has it? And now the question has become, how do you use this? What do you do with it? And what's so fascinating about synesthesia is the scientists are doing a fabulous job of trying to figure out how you can substitute senses. What you see can be turned into hearing. What you hear can be turned into sight. Mm -hmm. So for the people who are blind, they have things that are kind of crudely approximating echolocation, and people who are blind can navigate using it. It's very much in its early stages, but how fabulous. Mm -hmm. And for the artists, we are working with things that other people see, but they don't know that they see them. And what I'm finding with the hypnagogic work is how much people really, really like what I'm doing. And it's because there's something that's familiar to them in my work. So it's new but it's been seen in some way before. So people's response has been like yours was, like these are really beautiful. Hmm. And I get that all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Because it touches something of the human essence that is not necessarily conscious to most people, I think. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. There was a man in the 1920s at the University of Chicago by the name of Heinrich Kluver, and he did a lot of work with... People, including himself, who had taken mescaline, because mescaline will give you hallucinations. And the hallucinations are synesthetic perceptions. You see these colored shapes. And he wanted to know do people see the same things? In other words, when you have this experience of taking this hallucinogenic drug, what is your brain doing? And people are seeing the same things. And he created a series of three diagrams. And this is what synesthetes see. this is what non-synesthetes see, but you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I
2: think the question that, the second question you had about synesthesia of whether you were alone, I believe I read it was when you were listening to a radio program, that Dr. Richard Saitoic did that, <laughs> that. you began to realize, oh, I'm not you're alone, not alone. <laughs> and and you guys formed a friendship that then led you to create a sculpture based on his name. So I wondered if you could talk a little about that friendship and how it has maybe inspired your artwork and some of your other endeavors, like the American Synesthetic Association. Right,
3: realizing you weren't alone
1: Throughout my life, before I had the word synesthesia, I talked to a lot of people. Uh, one day someone told me, oh, what you're experiencing has a name. And then when I had the name, I would take people into my confidence, and I'd say, uh, I have colored letters, colored numbers. Um It's called synesthesia. Do you? And the answer was always, no, this sounds really interesting, but no, I, I don't see these things. Uh... One day, I was working as a sculptor. We were doing uh, characters for Happy Meals. Um, There are these promotions that Burger King and McDonald's and chains like that do to entice people to come in and buy the food and they get a little toy.
0: Wait, can we pause? So you're one of the people behind creating Happy Meal toys?
1: I didn't create them. I just sculpted the licensed characters. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> anyway, um there were four of us in this little cubicle, and we're sitting back to back. And we would pass these characters around. So I might be working on Wiley Coyote or I might be working on Bugs Bunny. Uh, we'd pass them around. Well this particular day I was working on Bugs Bunny. He was a little sculpture made out of wax and I was cleaning them up, refining the wax. These would be the prototypes that would be sent over to China and reproduced in the millions. So you didn't want to have a mistake it had to be right. And, you know, you work on one for a while and you get a little bored and you trade with somebody. So this day I was working on Bugs Bunny and I had a Walkman and in those days, this was what you listened to, mm-hmm. uh, music or you had a cassette tape. The batteries died, so I didn't take it to work with me that day. This was a summer job. A woman sitting next to me always listened to NPR. And I had already introduced the topic of synesthesia to the people in my cubicle asking, anybody have this? No? Okay, fine. <laughs> so this woman sitting next to me suddenly sits bolt upright, turns to the woman behind me as a way of explanation, lifted the headset off of the woman behind me, put it on my head and said, Carol has to hear this. Hmm. And it was Richard Saitook on NPR. One o'clock, August 31st, 1993. I never forget it. And I heard him being introduced, and the announcer said, I'd like to uh, introduce Richard Saitoik, whose new book, The Man Who Tasted Shapes, has just been released. It's about synesthesia. I stopped working, and I'm being paid a lot of money per hour but my eyes are full of tears, Mm -hmm. and I can't see. So I put my head down and pretended like I'm working. wasn't working. I'm making a deal with the devil in my head. I'm going, I won't charge them. And I listened. And I thought after half an hour, I got away with it. But I looked up, and the entire design team, the painters, the sculptors, the draftsmen, the computer people, had all gathered around and they were looking at me. Hmm. They all had the same look on their sprays. Something has happened. Something has just changed her life. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And I thought, I better get back to work. But I thought, I want to talk to him. Hmm. So I thought, what's another five minutes? I won't charge him for the whole hour. So uh, there was a phone in the cubicle, and I called the radio station. I said, could I speak with him? And I was told, oh, we're so sorry. It was a taped interview, but they were kind. And they said, we'll give you the name of his publicist. So I called his publicist, and I said, could I speak with him? I'm a synesthate. She said, oh, no, dear, you can't be. It's very rare. (laughs) And I'm going, but I am. She was kind, and she gave me his phone number, and I called. And two weeks later, Richard called me back. Now, in New York, unlike many other places in the world, it's perfectly all right to interrupt anybody at any point. The rest of the world thinks we're hugely rude, and I suppose we are, but we're so excited. so. In the 20-minute conversation, I don't think that Richard got one complete sentence out. <laughs> 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 and I started to cry again, and I said, why am I crying? He said, it's a catharsis. Yeah. And uh, we got to know each other. He's a fabulous person, very kind.
3: We had the pleasure of chatting with him, and yeah. we likewise blown away. Uh, he knows so much.
1: He put his reputation on the line as a medical doctor by investigating synesthesia. He had been warned, don't do this. This is going to ruin your career. Well, it didn't. Yeah. And we're all so grateful to him because he took a chance. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What did that moment of feeling seen and understood Can you describe what that moment felt like to you?
1: Tears, tears of joy, tears of, I didn't make it up. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I'd made it up, but there's something about a sanction when someone comes along, especially someone who knows as much as Richard Saitoic. And says, yeah, it's real. What you're talking about is real. Just that validation. It's like you don't have to apologize. You do have to explain because people don't know what you're talking about. But you don't have to say, I don't think I'm crazy. That doesn't enter into it. It's This is now gone from am I alone to I have a gift. What do I do with this gift? How can I use it? How can I share it? They say knowledge is power. Richard, because he gave me knowledge, in my case, knowledge was freedom.
0: Hey, friends, just wanted to reach out and say thanks for listening to the show. As you know, it's produced by a boutique media production company in Washington, D.C., called, you guessed it, Distant Moon. And we've got a request for you. We want to know what you're interested in. Is there a question you've always had, or some aspect of life, history, science, literature, pop culture, or literally anything that you'd be interested in seeing a series about? Have you always wished there was a podcast or TV show about a specific topic? Let us know what you're interested in hearing about or watching, and if we like your idea, we might just make it into a TV show or podcast. So send your ideas, requests, questions to contact at distantmoonmedia.com. That's C-O-N-T-A-C-T at distantmoonmedia.com. We can't wait to hear from you.
2: Now, in 1995, so actually not that long afterward, you started the American Synesthesia Association with Patricia Lynn Duffy, and it seems like there was a real desire there to connect other synesthetes with this network to continue building kind of a coalition or a base of people who could relate to each other and then Talk to other scientists researching synesthesia. Um, so I was wondering what first inspired that idea and how you and Miss Duffy decided to collaborate on that project.
1: Pat was the first synesthete that I met, except for my father who didn't want to talk about it. Pat was happy to talk about it. <laughs> and one day, it was November, 1995, and Pat came over to my studio. We had met because of another scientist, uh, Simon Baron-Cohen, who's over at Cambridge. And we had been in touch, Simon and I, because of the BBC, Orange Sherbert Kisses documentary, which came out in 1994. And I really was reaching out to every single person who was in that documentary, uh, synesthetes and scientists alike. Uh, just really, these were the only people on earth who knew anything about synesthesia. This was my way to network. And Simon said, well, there's another synesthete who lives in New York City and two synesthetes in the same city should know each other. So he put us in touch. So Pat came over to my studio one day and it was a November night and we're looking out the window at nothing. Like, you sometimes look, but you're not focused on what you're seeing. And we told each other the story of how we had discovered the word synesthesia. And it had been a long journey for her, too, as it had been for me. And we decided there had to be other people in the world who had synesthesia. We should do something. And we started the American Synesthesia organization that night with a membership of two. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I got together a board. We found a pro bono lawyer we incorporated. We uh applied for and got not-for-profit status, which means you have to deal with the IRS. And the IRS asked innumerable questions, just pages of them and kept checking. And every time they asked a question, coincidentally, Smithsonian Magazine, Discover Magazine, New York Times, um, Wall Street Journal, somebody of that caliber came out with an article. (laughs) So we'd just say, yes, we're doing this. And oh, have you seen this article? (laughs) Have you seen this television broadcast? Did you listen to NPR? Um And it was going on just like that. It's supposed to take about 10 years to get not-for-profit. We did it in nine because the press was just so incredible, and it just kept coming. And it's thanks to the press, to the media, to you guys for getting the word out there so that people know, so they don't worry. You're not crazy. You're one of us.
0: And what is the membership of the organization grown to now? So it started with the two of you. Yeah, where are where are membership? you guys now?
1: Hundreds. Hundreds. I don't have an exact figure. But on average, every two years or so, we have a conference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How has the view culturally of synesthesia changed as you've been working on this? As someone who doesn't have synesthesia, I see kind of all these famous cool people like suddenly saying, oh yeah, I have synesthesia. It seems like every other day there's another musician or artist or someone who's talking about synesthesia. And full disclosure, you know, when I first started learning about synesthesia, and I I hope and I think I've come a long way since this point, but I first used to roll my eyes going, oh yeah, sure, that person, you know, does. (laughs) Because it seems like every cool person now has it. Have you seen that explosion culturally and societally? And what do you attribute that to?
1: I attribute it to knowledge. People are finding out about it. And that's why I thank you guys for what you do because you're putting the word out. And people are finding out that they're not alone, that this isn't some strange, weird thing that they need to be silent about, But rather it's a gift and that they are probably using it in some way already. Mm-hmm. Uh It's changed over the years tremendously from me being afraid to acceptance to uh almost envy. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> I, yeah. wa- I want this. I want to be able to see what you guys are, are seeing. Yeah. And I have sort of an answer to that. There appear to be five different ways that people can experience anesthesia or get it. Some of us have it from babyhood. The neuronal connections in the brain didn't all get cut away, they remain. So we've kept it, and 4.4% of the population have it. Uh, You could have a vision before you get a migraine headache. Some people get migraines that are like visual storms, and they never get the pain of a migraine headache. Some people who have seizures, same thing. Of course, thanks to LSD, mescaline, peyote, you can take hallucinogenic drugs, problem as those tend to come with side effects. And the last way, I was at a consciousness conference in 2010, the Center for Consciousness Studies, and they had a Buddhist Rinpoche, and he was speaking. And I went up to him afterwards, because he had said in his talk that they want people to attain synesthesia because you have to have synesthesia to get to enlightenment. And the way that you get synesthesia is through meditation. My husband and I both meditate. He meditates more rigorously than I do. And uh, he has developed synesthesia. It came about in a funny way. As I had mentioned earlier, the best way to show synesthesia would be through video but I don't know After Effects. <laughs> I have a friend, however, who does. And I've worked with Chad Sakura for many years. And I would tell him, I'd use it in Photoshop, I'd do drawings, paintings, whatever I could to try to show him the mood, the movement, the speed, the color shifts, how it really worked. And he would animate it. And he would send me little sketches, video sketches of what he'd done. And I always asked my husband Carter to come over and take a look. And one day Chad sent some sketches and I asked Carter to look and Carter said, but they're wrong. (laughs) And I said, I know they're wrong. How do you know they're wrong? He said, it's not what I see when I meditate. Mm -hmm. Oh. So that turned out to be true.
3: That's funny. Mm -hmm. That's
1: cool. The other thing about synesthesia that maybe most people don't realize is there seems to be kind of a range of people having weak synesthetic perceptions to people who are having very, very strong ones. And Mm -hmm. people should know that, too. And there are maybe 70 documented forms of synesthesia already, and they're still counting. So. We don't know a lot about synesthesia, but there's so many scientists working. One other point that I would like to make is that we're only studying synesthesia in the rich countries, Mm -hmm. the countries that have amazing telecommunication capabilities and resources. But there's a tribe, and there are probably many tribes around the world, indigenous populations, that probably are experiencing synesthesia. They say that, I'm gonna probably mispronounce the name, my apologies, but there's a tribe in Peru, Shipibo, and they will do weavings of the colors of the scent of the flowers. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so that sounds to me like they have colored smell, sounds to me like synesthesia, what else do they do? These are the populations we have not reached. And many of them don't want to talk to us and you can't blame them.
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) But there's a whole world out there for the anthropologists. What do you know? If you've got something to share, I really would like to hear it.
0: So it's interesting because what you're describing sounds to me like a very rich cultural embedding of synesthesia not just across cultures currently, but something that probably goes back you know, through human history to ancient times. I know that there have been some studies, some anthropological studies that suggest that even uh, old accounts of soothsayers or, or witch doctors or things like that were people who had synesthesia and were connecting senses that the average person in their society community. didn't yeah. connect. Uh, does that ring true for what you see?
1: Well, that's my hope that in these studies, and I know very, very little about them, but I'm so interested. What do they see? How do they use it in terms of been around for a long time? Yeah, I could send you a diagram, one of the Kluver form constant diagrams. And if you took a look at paleolithic art, you're going to see those shapes there. Hmm. Yeah. It's the human condition. It's the familiarity that I mentioned before. It's been around forever. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I believe you and Greta Berman have curated some exhibits by artists who you know have synesthesia. And I've also done some work that you just kind of referenced on identifying historic artists who you think may have had synesthesia as well. So what was the process of kind of finding those identification points that hinted at the existence of synesthesia in art? And how did you then work on applying those to specific artists who you think may have had
1: synesthesia? Great question. Greta and I did a museum show of genuine synesthetic artists at the McMaster Museum of Art in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. We also put out a book uh in conjunction with that exhibition. And then later, and I, Greta, did a chapter for the Handbook of Synesthesia that Oxford University Press published in 2013. We were using the clue forms. What had happened was one day I had gotten an invitation to put a painting in a group exhibition, and I have a storage closet on the hall from my loft, and I went looking for a painting. Uh, I had just read one of Richard Saitoic's books and had just come across the Kluverian form constants.
0: And, and what are the Cluverian form constants? For the listener who
1: might not know. For, 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 those
0: the... for those who don't know, <laughs> unlike us.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Remember, I had mentioned that Kluver had taken mescaline and had asked a group of other people to take mescaline and to draw what they were seeing, Mm -hmm. the different shapes. And a diagram was created by Marty Horowitz to show these shapes, what people were seeing, that. Kluver had decided were inherent in the human's ability to perceive, and these were these basic building blocks of visual perception. I had just seen these diagrams in one of Richard's books. Well, I'm going down the hall, and I'm opening the closet to find a painting to send to this group show, and I see a sculpture that I made and the sculpture is exactly the shape of a Kluverian form constant. It sits on the wall above the computer I'm looking at right now as a constant reminder to me, don't assume you know anything. (laughs) 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 And suddenly, I had an epiphany. It's like, this shape, is it in my work? And I I left the closet open, ran down the hall, ran into my loft, looked at the paintings on the walls here, and there were Cluverian forms in every single painting. And then I started to wonder, I'm an artist. I'm an artist who has synesthesia. Are there other artists who have synesthesia? So I started to do some reading and looking, and this was before the internet. We didn't have Google. How do you find them? So I would look at books, and I looked at Hockney, and I saw the shapes. And I looked at Birchfield, and I saw the shapes. And I looked at Kandinsky, and I saw the shapes. And in particular, I looked at Van Gogh, and I saw the shapes. Hmm. You can't go by just one person's perception. You have to know that this is something that other people observe. Two, You need empiricism. You need rigor. And I've learned that from the scientists. Just cannot be one person. So we started to do research. Greta's an art historian.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm not perfect combination. I can see these things. She's got the knowledge. So we started to put together stories. And we discovered that Charles Birchfield, Charles Birchfield's was married and he had five kids but he didn't tell his wife and he didn't tell any of his children what he did instead is he wrote his perceptions in his journals Mm -hmm. and we could read them Hockney had given an interview i think it was in 1981 richard says and he was making some statements that sounded very synesthetic to Richard's ears. So Richard sent him a letter. And he tells me that Hockney walked around with this letter in his breast pocket for two months. And finally he invited Richard to come to his LA studio. And Richard tested him. Synesthetic. Yeah. Kandinsky was lucky. Kandinsky knew what synesthesia was because it was very popular in Europe between sometime around the 1880s and the 1920s. Everybody wanted it. And those people who had it were talking about it. Van Gogh credited some amazing research. She gathered up all of the material she could. She made an appointment with the curators at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. She went to Amsterdam. She met with them. At the beginning of the interview with them, they were saying, no, no, no. At the end of the interview, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Conversion happened. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we... We hear the stories. We do some digging. Uh, Joan Mitchell, who always hated being called an abstract expressionist, was a synesthete a very secretive one. She slept with the key to her studio under her pillow, and she covered all the windows in her studio in France with burlap. Uh, but she wrote letters to her friends so we could read those letters. And she talked about colored letters and other things. So it's through letters, it's through stories, it's through documentation, it's through actually talking to people and hearing self-reports. And it's by looking at the work, particularly the artists who aren't with us anymore, and finding the clue forms. Now, because color is such a big part in synesthesia, people think, well, it's just going to exist in two-dimensional art. It exists in architecture and sculpture and ceramics and everything else too.
0: So, if, if we can swing back around to hypnagogic visions really quickly, um, I, I think it's interesting because that seems to have gotten less uh, coverage, at least in uh, popular culture, than synesthesia uh, as, as areas of study. Uh, but if I understand correctly, Edgar Allan Poe, wrote a lot about what we now would call hypnagogic visions. Is that correct?
1: Yes, he used them. Uh, Francis Galton did too. Galton was, I think, a cousin of Charles Darwin. Uh, Oliver Sacks had hypnagogic visions. Baudelaire and Poe both used them for inspiration. And uh, Nabokov talks about his hypnagogic visions ever so minimally. I think it's just in one sentence in his autobiography, Speak Memory. In that autobiography, he's talking about the colors of his letters. But just before he goes into the description, he mentions hypnagogic visions. So again, these are the breadcrumbs. These are the things that I stumble upon or other people stumble upon and share with me. Uh, that drive my research and give me permission to make my art. And I'm grateful to everybody because I could not have done any of this without so much help.
3: I know about Joan Mitchell and, and her history and not liking the label of abstract expressionism. And in particular, being an abstract artist myself, so many times you'll meet those People who are not fans of abstract art, and they'll say, "I don't like it. It's not real. It doesn't actually exist." But to me, and to Synesthees, what are you talking about? It's the mo- to me, it's the most real thing. And the works that have brought me to tears more than any other type of art have always been abstract pieces. I could stand in front of a Joan Mitchell or a Helen Frankenthaler, for example, and those two artists in particular, I've wept in front of their works more than almost any other artist. Mm-hmm. And so my question for you is, how, what do you call your works? Do you categorize them as abstract? Or do you have another word that you like them to be categorized under? Or, or what is your experience with the terminology
1: um, with your work in particular? That's such a great question. Well, what I see is as real to me as looking with my eyes open and seeing your face. It's just as real. Pat Duffy. Um She's very good with words. She said, we're painting our internal landscape. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. It's a landscape that only we can see. So by painting it, we can share.
3: Yeah. So would you call these your internal landscapes then? Is that a term that we can call them? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I love that. I really like that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks,
2: (laughs) Pat. Huh. Um, one question we've liked to ask near the end of a, a podcast, just out of curiosity and fun, is if there's any sort of synesthesia that you don't have that you think it would be fun to have. That it if sounds it were like
1: you're developing your synesthetic yeah quality. maybe it'll so come maybe to you. <laughs> come. Which one would you like to have next, Carol? Um, I want time space, and I haven't got a chance of getting it. <laughs> so far. I really want to know what you guys experience, because I don't. And I feel so much like a person without synesthesia when it comes like that. It's like a big mystery, even though I've seen the diagrams and I've heard the descriptions. I want to see it for myself, and I haven't. So I have a little envy here. here. Maybe someday. Yeah.
2: Well, I have lots to envy in your story and Christine's, so it's it's a mutual experience, and it's so fun to to hear. Nothing to envy in Ian's. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Ian.
0: (laughs) I am curious, though. Is there a lesson that we can take away looking at the burgeoning discovery and study of synesthesia? What synesthesia means for both those who have it, but also for the world uh, of people who don't have it.
1: There are people who see the world differently. And when I was a kid growing up, if you saw the world differently, you were odd person out. Now what we've discovered is everybody sees the world differently. And there's so much joy to be found in the diversity. And that's what we should welcome. So if you have synesthesia, yes, you see the world differently. If you have something else, yes, you see the world differently. And that's what makes being human so rich and so remarkable. So I go with what Peter Brook was trying to do with his collaborator, Marie-Hélène Essien. You go through hell sometimes for a glimpse of paradise. And we're all different. And that's great keep it up. Mm. Great <laughs> words.
0: Can't think of a better way to end it.
3: <laughs> uh,
1: thank you
2: so much, Carol, for taking the time to speak to us and for sharing so many incredible stories. It's just yeah. been a huge pleasure to talk to you.
1: Uh, thank you so much for asking such clever questions. And well-researched questions. You guys are amazing. Oh, thank, you. thank you. You knew it. as much as you knew.
0: Well, that's definitely <laughs> making the edit. High <laughs> my praise. High my praise. Awesome. Thank you. Thank All you. All right.
2: Thanks. Have a great day, Carol. You too. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to our show. We're having a blast making it, but we're just getting started and we need your help. If you want more episodes and hear from some of the leading artists, thought leaders, and scientists discussing how synesthesia is shaping our world, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, the Apple podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can get each awesome new episode automatically delivered to you. And please leave a review. That's one of the best ways for people to find our show. This show features Christine Olmsted, Grace Olmsted, and me ian reed our producer is alana varley and the show is mixed by johnny crack corn because he don't care jesse eastman our title music is by virgil arles with additional music by captain and thad Kopeck. sinpod is recorded and produced by distant moon media catch you all next week